You guys turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8, please. I was thinking about when David was sharing his vignette, I was remembering uh, because of the verse he quoted from Luke, my dad is a Baptist pastor. And when I was in elementary school, he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of uh, Gaston, South Carolina. If you're from this area, you know where Gaston is. If you aren't, you probably don't. But it's just south of here on your way to Charleston. Of course, the First Baptist Church of Gaston is a Baptist church like many others. It's got a, a cemetery in the backyard. And every year, my dad's church would, of course, have homecoming. Maybe some of you grow up, grew up with your churches having, uh, having homecoming. All people that were from Gaston would come from all over the state. They would visit. They would attend Sunday morning worship. And then they would have a lunch in the fellowship hall afterwards. Well, they had homecoming and everything went great. You know, it was fine. It was a success. And a week later, my dad received a letter from a gentleman that had been visiting uh, Gaston from his home in the upstate. And the letter said, my grandfather is buried in your cemetery and weeds and briars and snakes and thistles have infested his gravestone, and I am deeply disappointed with your maintenance of the cemetery at the First Baptist Church of Gaston. And so my dad said for the first time in his life, he got to apply the full weight of that verse that David quoted, and he wrote him back and he said, let the dead bury the dead, you follow Christ. So, anyways... Uh, I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8 for us, and then we'll get started. This is a long passage, like they've all been, uh, but we'll read the whole thing. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. 
He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we trust you. And we know that your name is a name that endures forever. And we want you to be the one that leads over us. We want you to guide us this morning to fill our hearts with love towards you and with love towards one another. That won't happen, though, unless you send your Spirit. And so we would ask that you would send your Spirit, guard me from saying anything erroneous or unhelpful, and awaken all of our hearts to joy and love for your Son. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it's important to remember this morning where we've come from. It's interesting Because we've come a long way since we read the very first words of this book. There was a man whose name was Elkanah. That's the first verse of this book, and we read that just a couple months ago, but we've come decades in the span of time that the book of 1 Samuel tells us. We've seen Elkanah take a wife named Hannah, and we've seen Hannah mourn her childlessness. We've seen her take her grief and sadness over her childlessness to God. And we've seen her make a vow. I was totally blown away this week when I thought about this fact. When I was writing those words, I realized, you know, really this epic drama that we've been walking through week after week really just began with a very simple vow made out of a feeling of deep desperation. And that's amazing to me. Dozens have died. I mean, crazy stuff has happened. But a promise is a strong and mighty thing in the hands of the living God. So that's a digression, but it's an amazing thing to remember. But her vow was, of course, that if God would give her a son, she would give that son to the Lord forever. She had this deep desire for a son, but she was willing, if God would give it to her, that she would give him right back to God. And God did that. He answered her prayer. He fulfilled his end of the vow, and he gave her a son, and Hannah did exactly as she said, and she left her son Samuel in the hands of Eli the priest to be trained in the ways of the Lord. Hannah, as, as one writer I read this week, this is an amazing way to put it, he said, Samuel was like miraculous seed springing up from dead earth, and he was. And he led Israel for decades. Samuel led Israel from defeat and sin to renewed covenant and really regional political supremacy. That's amazing in just a few decades. And as we learned last week, the most important thing that Samuel did is take this people, this sinful people, this people that consistently reject God and put them into a place of lament and repentance, and it put them in a place of remembrance, reminded them of a story, and a story that tells something about a God that delivers His people from sin, that delivers His people from danger, and a story about a God that has the right and authority to call His people to a certain way of being in the world. 
Well, the end of chapter 7 closes a section of our book. It closes a moment in time. It closes a moment in this story. And we're going to shift gears this morning. Chapter 7 really ends with the pinnacle. This is the end of the sort of pinnacle of Samuel's career. Like Muhammad Ali's fight with George Foreman or something. From this point on, Samuel's going to win a few battles, but his power is diminishing greatly by the day. And we get that picture right off the bat in chapter 8. In the first verse, we're told that Samuel has become old, and he really follows in the fate of his mentor Eli. Ancient Israel was no country for old men. Samuel's sons turned after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And even though Samuel isn't blamed explicitly for his son's actions, without a doubt the wickedness of his sons begins to diminish his effectiveness and his authority in the eyes of the public. So what must Samuel do? He's got to do what Eli did. He's got to find an adopted son. He's got to find a son that doesn't necessarily come from his line. He must find an adopted son to take on the mantle of leadership in Israel. And so he begins to think about that. But the conflict that 1 Samuel 8 gives us is that the people of Israel don't see it that way. They don't want it that way at all. They want a king. They don't want things to go the way that Samuel had taken them. They're not looking for a judge hearing directly from God that archaic primitive vision of leadership. The people of Israel are over that, and they want a king. God doesn't like that, though, and Samuel doesn't like that. But the problem isn't what we think it is. The problem isn't them asking for a king in and of itself. That's not really a big deal, because in Deuteronomy 17, Moses said, there's going to come a time when your people are going to ask for a king. There's going to come a time when you're going to want a king as the people of Israel, and that's okay. There's not a problem with that. The problem is the motive that Israel had in their hearts when they asked for a king. Why did they want a king? You heard when I read it. They wanted a king because they wanted to be like the nations. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that was the exact opposite of the identity that Israel had had all along. All of Israel's true leadership from burning bush onward has said the reality is you are not like the nations. Don't do things like the nations. Your father in heaven is holy. Another way you can say holy is just different. You also be different. Your father in heaven is different. You be different. Now, what doubles down on the interestingness of all of that is if you ever wanted to take time and read Deuteronomy 17 and read the section where Moses actually talks about, hey, you're going to ask for a king someday. The kind of king that Moses predicts is virtually the exact opposite of the kind of king that Samuel predicts will come in verses 10 through 18. The king Moses predicts, And Deuteronomy 17 can't have any of the customary royal perks. None of that can be true of the king of Israel. It's very opposite of what 10 through 18 says. The king that Moses predicts in Deuteronomy 17 is not allowed to build a military machine. 
Very opposite of what Samuel predicts. The king that Moses predicts in Deuteronomy 17 can only have one wife. That's not what Samuel sees coming. All of these things are true. He must not accumulate for himself massive wealth. In other words, the king that Moses knew that would be successful leading the people of Israel must maintain the Godward agrarian vision that Israel had cultivated. And he must remember the words of the Lord. That's the only king that can reign over Israel. And what I want to do this morning, very briefly, is just look at what I think are three false assumptions that Israel makes about God in this passage. Now, I think that these false assumptions about God echo through the ages and ring in our hearts as well. If we've learned anything from 1 Samuel, I think what what we've learned is God is sort of unpredictable. He does things that we don't expect. 1 Samuel presents us with a God and we're bewildered by Him. We're confused by Him. But it's a sweet confusion because it begins to transform our hearts and our eyes and give us the vision of a God as He is, not as we expect Him to be. So here's the first thing. Israel assumed, and I think we assume, that all of these things, let me just pause and say this again, all of these things are misunderstandings about the way that God acts. We understand that God is not static in the world, but always in motion. So number one, we assume that God's acts will be novel and mechanical. Let me explain. The Israelites, I think, looked at the age of Samuel They looked at the wickedness of Samuel's sons and they looked at the politics of the nations and they assumed that for them to move forward as a people, they needed a novel solution. They did not take a step back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got wickedness in the temple. We've got wickedness in the leadership of Israel. What part do we have to play in that? There was no moment that you see in this chapter where Israel does what Israel did last week and take a pause, lament their own sin, repent of their own sin, and remember God's goodness. That doesn't happen here. I suspect that decades before this explicit wickedness had broke out in the temple, people in Israel looked around and said, things are looking bumpy. The temple is beginning to look a little rocky. The holiness that we expected out of our leadership is beginning to dwindle and diminish. Now, you hear it, this like a truism, right, that we hear in our culture. As the leadership goes, so go the people, or something like that. And of course, that's true. But I think the opposite is true as well. You can't tell me that if Israel, if the people of Israel had continued the posture of lament and repentance and remembering God's mercy, that the sons of Samuel would would have been able to continue their wickedness in the temple. It wouldn't have happened. And so now when it comes time that the scandal is broken, scandal all over Israel, what is the solution that Israel comes up with? Give us a mechanical solution. Give us a little tweak politically. Let's get a little minor adjustment going on. But by all means, don't ask us to take a step back and take a long, hard look at our heart. There's nothing we can do about Samuel's sons, right? That's like me calling my boss out. 
you know, it's just, a, it feels awkward to them. But that's not true. When I was thinking about that, I was reminded of uh, a number of different, when you think about what a mechanical tweak is or a novel tweak in our own lives, like personally when we're dealing with sin, let's say. I was reminded the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous is phenomenal on this point. And they tell the story about a man that would come in. He's in dire straits on Skid Row. He's an alcoholic, been an alcoholic for decades, and he's lost everything. His family's left him. His friends have left him. His wife's gone. Everything's gone. And he'll walk into an AA hall and say, I figured it out. I'm just going to switch from whiskey to beer. Or I'm just going to, I'm not going to drink before 5 p.m. anymore. That'll fix it. We'll be good and we'll move on. And the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous calls that a half measure. And it says, half measures availed us nothing. What we needed was a fearless and a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And you don't have to be an alcoholic for that, to be a re- for that to be relevant. That's a sin thing. Each and every one of us in this room knows what it looks like to not want to dig deep. Like that splinter that's in your foot that you keep putting a Band-Aid over because you don't want to bring the knife out and dig in the foot to pitch that splinter out. Nobody's taught me more about this than my wife. I see this happen in my marriage all the time. There will be a moment in my marriage where I know where Anna and I will have a disagreement and I'll know that I wounded Anna deeply. Maybe she wounded me a little bit or something. And I, I, don't, I don't like growling at each other across the living room. I don't like giving each other sideways glances at the kitchen table. I don't like the silent treatment. I want reconciliation as much as the next guy, right? And so... Instead of doing the dark, hard work of exposing probably something that's been going on since the very beginning of my marriage, what do I do? I'll make up a new rule, right, for our marriage. I'll say something like, honey, let's make sure that we eat dinner together as a family every night this week. And I want that to be the novel tweak, the mechanical tweak. But don't ask me to dig deep in my heart and repent of what I've done. A novel mechanical tweak is always less painful than a true and authentic posture of repentance. Secondly, these all kind of bleed into each other. They come right after each other. If we think that God is going to act in a way that's novel and mechanical, that uh, sort of says that we assume, number two, we assume that we can prescribe how God acts. The Israelites wanted a king to rule over them, but they still had a problem With authority. They wanted a king, but they still had a problem with authority. The Bible tells its stories from a very specific point of view. This dawned on me that when you read the Bible, you're coming from the point of view of divine intervention, human fallenness. We get this, like we, you know, we say that phrase, hindsight is 2020. And so when we read the Bible, you've kind of got 2020 hindsight. You see the way God is moving. You see the obvious failures of the people in the Bible. And so you tend to look at the characters of the Bible as buffoons. You've done that. You read about the disciples and you say, what's going on here? I mean, how in the world could somebody act that way? But you ought not do that too quickly because all of us make that same mistake. 
especially the mistake that we know exactly what's best for us and that God agrees with us with what we think is best for us. Israel thought the best thing for them was a king, and they thought for sure God would agree, right? They knew God would agree with them. A king is what we need. I'm convinced that Psalm 37, chapter 4, is one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. And that verse says, many of you will know it, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I've heard people invoke that verse both explicitly and implicitly innumerable times to call God to the carpet, to call God out for not doing what they wanted Him to do. This is what I want, God. Why don't you agree with me? Why don't you do that? Well, God has His reasons. He does. And the point of uh, Psalm 37.4 and 1 Samuel 8 is to say, detach yourself from the politics of the world. Detach yourself from the things of the world and attach yourself to me. Begin your journey towards the good life by delighting in the Lord because himself, he will never withhold from you, ever. God would have continued, like we said in our call to worship, he would have continued to lead Israel like a flock and would have given them everything they wanted if it was him primarily, primarily they wanted. And finally... I think an assumption we make about God that's wrong is that we assume that God is always acting for what we perceive to be our temporary good. There's a lot of modifiers in there. I know that God's always acting for our good, Romans 8. But the problem is, in this passage, it does something kind of funny where God gives Israel exactly what he knows is bad for them. And so sometimes God gives us exactly what we ask from him, and it turns out to be a bad thing. You may or may not remember the story of uh, after Israel. God, we were reading this in our reading, or we haven't gotten to it yet. But you know, God sends Israel manna from heaven when they're walking around in the wilderness. And there comes a point in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel get sick of manna. They're tired of the cakes that taste like oil, and they're done with it. And they start complaining, and they said, Oh, that we would be back in Egypt where at least we had fish, you know. Why can't we get some meat? And God says, I'm going to give you meat until it's coming out of your nostrils. That's exactly what the, how it reads in Exodus. And he does. He sends them quail, whew, sweeps up on Israel. I mean, they got more than they can eat. It's coming out of their nostrils. Next thing you know, plague. And they're dying left and right. That's where misplaced desires lead, I think. It leads to that. I don't have to tell you this. This point is made so easily by our society that it's virtually not worth saying. We cry out for more and more and more stuff. Give me a king. Give me it like I want it. Give me it now. And God gives it to us. And we lose more and more and more control. We want more substances, more food, more money, more debt, more freedom, and so on. And God finally says, I can't do anything else about it. I've got, to let it. I've got to let them have it. That's misplaced desire, and it, and it ruins us. I was reading uh, St. Augustine's Confessions this week, and he, this is what that whole thing is about. But one of the most beautiful sentences in that book is when he says, the good things which you love are all from God, but they are good and sweet only as long as they are used to do His will. They will rightly turn bitter if God is spurned and the things that come from Him are wrongly loved.
Israel was no country for old men. They didn't have time for old men like Samuel with their old ways and old traditions and old God. They needed new methods and a different God, and they needed it all in abundance right now. But even if Samuel's eyes had grown dim, his vision of Israel's future was 2020. He knew, as he says here, that the king that Israel asked for, one like the nations, would cause nothing but pain for Israel. What we know on this side of the resurrected Jesus is that there's a solution that was perfect for both parties. God must and will be king of his people. And Israel must and will have a king that came to serve and not to be served. That king came to earth in poverty, born into a situation very similar to Hannah's, but he would and will treat his people very differently than this prediction that Samuel makes. Think about it. Think about what Samuel says in verses 10 through 18. While the worldly king will take our sons and force them into risky military situations, Jesus pronounced a kingdom that is not of this world, and he forced his soldiers into decisive and vigilant nonviolence. The worldly king would force our sons into difficult labor, but Jesus came and reminded us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. While the worldly king would, de- would demand that our sons would grow his crops in the heavenly economy, it's God that gives the increase. The worldly king, Samuel says, would force our daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. King Jesus comes and liberates our daughters from slavery to men and gives them the authority to tread on the throats of their oppressors and make them true daughters of Zion who bow the knee to no man. In all of these things, all of us would cry out for how our worldly king oppresses us. And with King Jesus, we shout for joy that the Lamb of God has triumphed and will reign with righteousness and justice and equity forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we love you. We thank you for the King that has come and is still to come. And we pray that he would come quickly. We eagerly await his coming. And we ask that it would be soon. Father, will you, in the meantime, transform our hearts. Keep us poised between the memory of your past works on our behalf and the hope of his coming. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.